The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, January 11th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and welcome to Newsapalooza 2017. It began with the confirmation hearings of Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. So measured, so silvery, so patrician, so relative to his boss, rational. Did Russia violate this international order when it forcefully annexed Crimea and invaded Ukraine? Yes, it did. Hey, that's something. Shouldn't be, but it is. More on the Tillerson hearings later in the show. So as those things were going on, President-elect Trump's first press conference in 168 days takes place. To begin, Trump lashed out at the dossier detailing his contacts with the Russians, but he had more than a wee problem when it came to his business interests. He announced that financial dealings will not affect his presidency because, well, because he's such a good guy. And he asserted that he's under no obligation to disclose, to divest, to give you the time of day, you failing pile of garbage media. But because he is such a good guy, listen to what he did. Over the weekend, I was offered... $2 billion to do a deal in Dubai with a very, very, very amazing man, a great, great developer from the Middle East, Hussein Demak, a friend of mine, great guy, and was offered $2 billion to do a deal in Dubai, number of deals. And I turned it down. He did not take the deal. Could have taken it, but he didn't. Furthermore, he is going to build a wall beyond that one on the border. Yes, said he's going to build that. The Mexicans are going to pay for it, maybe in a year and a half. But he's going to build a wall between his business and his presidency. And the name of this wall will also be Donald Trump, along with his brother, Eric. My two sons, who are right here, Don and Eric, are going to be running the company. They are going to be running it in a very professional manner. They're not going to discuss it with me. Again, I don't have to do this. Trump went on to give 15 minutes of the press conference over to a lawyer he hired to assert that he wasn't violating the emoluments clause because he wouldn't take any profit from foreigners, even though the emoluments clause doesn't concern itself with profit. Profit is also a fungible concept, can be hidden. It represents revenue in excess of costs. The emoluments clause just talks about revenue. You can't be enriched by foreign governments. The Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, LTD, is the Trump Tower's biggest tenant. Its lease is up in 2019. It is just one of the many clear violations of the Emoluments Clause should Congress ever wish to bring impeachment proceedings. Overall, reporters were hard-pressed to press Trump hard. Take the answer to this question, which was, what do you think of Senator Lindsey Graham's plans for tougher sanctions on Russia? I hadn't heard Lindsey Graham was going to do that. Lindsey Graham. I've been competing with him for a long time, and he's going to crack that 1% barrier one day. I didn't realize Lindsey Graham's still at it. It's all right. I think Lindsey Graham's a nice guy, actually. I've heard that he's a nice guy, and I've I've been hearing it. I've been hearing it. Now, about 20 minutes earlier, a few hundred miles away, here was the actual Lindsey Graham at the hearings for Trump's attorney general appointee, Jeff Sessions, at these hearings. NAACP CEO Cornell Brooks was detailing Sessions' history of, quote, showing a disdain for the civil and human rights of racial and ethnic minorities. Graham had at him. Mr. Brooks, do you give a scorecard to members of Congress? 
The NAACP does indeed. Okay. Uh, do you know what score was given to Senator Sessions in the 113th Congress? The, the senator has received a uh, low grade, as in a failing grade, for years on end. Okay, he got 11%. What did I get? Uh, senator, I have to consult the, the uh, scorecard for you. I got 25%. At this point, Graham went through every Republican on the committee. None had a grade higher than 30%. Hatch got 25%. Grassley got 11%. Lee got 11%. Cruz got 11%. What did the Democrats get on this committee? Feinstein got 100%. Lay got 100%. Durbin got 100%. White House got 100%. Klobuchar got 100%. It turns out all the Democrats got 100%, except one who got 96%. Here's how Cornell Brooks answered. There are no questions. Um, the report card is based on legislation, not party affiliation. Well, isn't it kind of odd that one party gets 100% and nobody else does very well on our side? Senator, I don't think it's odd. It simply reflects... The I think it's really odd. I think it's... Well, it speaks for itself. And with that, Graham did not let Brooks speak for himself. He went on to another question. Brooks was so clearly holding his tongue. He could have said... This isn't a racism scorecard. A good answer might have been, it's not odd. It reflects the fact that Democratic senators support legislation that would be helpful to African Americans, in our view, and Republicans do not or do so at a much lower level in our assessment. But it is okay. Sessions is going to get confirmed. Tillerson is probably going to get confirmed. The only question is, will that Russian dossier get confirmed? And that's what I will be talking about, along with the Tillerson hearing with Fred Kaplan. And in this spiel, the Women's March on Washington and how activists define activism. But first, compromat and autocrats. Joining me now is Fred Kaplan, who, uh, well, his portfolio really lends itself to these times. His latest book is Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. He is also the author of the War Stories column for Slate, has written extensively about the American way of war. Hello, Fred. How are you? Hey, Mike. Let's talk. Let's first start talking about uh, the dossier. The first thing I would say, we have no way of knowing if it's true or not, right? Right. But I would say that uh, I think that presenting it to Trump, once once the intelligence agencies made the determination that there is some degree, there's some percentage chance that it is true, it came from, you know, a formerly trusted source, let's say. Presenting it to Trump seems to me, I want your opinion, but seems to me to be the prudent choice because Trump would know if it were true and it's important to tell a candidate, look, you know if it's this is true or not, the Russians have this on you. If it's not true, don't worry. If it is true, do. Well, as I understand it, he didn't. They didn't tell the candidate. They they told the president elect on Friday, right? And they they had told Obama, President Obama, on Thursday during it, it, both of these as part of the overall classified briefing of the intelligence committee's full review of the question of Russian hacking. I, as as I understand it, this was included in a two-page annex and as part of the oral brief where they said now. There's this stuff out there uh, which says the Russians have something on you. Now, 
another thing that's interesting to note is that the FBI has known about this since September or October. This is known. The fact that James Comey said nothing about this, well, I mean, that's okay. But the fact that he said nothing about this and yet chose to comment about a week before the election of having learned of new emails that might affect uh, Hillary Clinton's use of classified information without even having looked at these new emails. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's, it'd be very unrealistic to say that this had no effect on the election. I think that, that what he did uh, looks even more irresponsible and politically motivated than, than it did at the time. Right. But giving it to Trump, and most of his criticism has been against the press or someone mm -hmm. possibly in the intelligence community who leaked it. But giving it to Trump, even if they couldn't, um, uh, even if they couldn't confirm it, that seems to, is, was that the prudent move? Yeah. I, I think for one thing, it's telling him that, hey, we haven't substantiated this, but there is some reason to believe that the Russians might think that they have something on you and that they might use this to blackmail you. Right. Uh, I think it would be, unless this was dismissed as just, you know, something just, just thoroughly made up. Right. Uh, it's a prudent thing to do. Yeah, right. absolutely. There is some uh, thought that, oh, this explains this. This would be the explanation of why Trump would be so soft on Putin or cozying up to Putin. I didn't need that explanation. Who couldn't, who has been really looking at this situation who didn't say, well, of course the Russians could have at least enriched Trump and possibly have some dirt on him. Well, look, here's the thing. And, and again, this is why this report is, it resonates. Okay. Because, look, the Russians, I mean, this is part of their standard practice for decades now, that they have a word for it. It's called compromat, uh, which is a little bit heavier than what we would call compromising. They have a, a practice of tracking VIPs or polit politicians who come into Russia, in some cases seeing if there's anything that they're doing that could then be used as blackmail against them. In some cases, they set up situations in which to blackmail them. If Trump really did do this thing in the hotel room mm -hmm. that the dossier describes, I mean, it, it, it would be kind of surprising that he wouldn't know that someone like him would be put in a hotel room that would be filled with cameras. That was, that was his argument today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And plus, I'm a germaphobe. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, but, but that stuff is, is sterile, right? Actually, you know, this is interesting. I've looked into that. <laughs> Science shows that urine is not sterile, but they really, the really robust research on this has occurred in the last couple years. So in 2013, I do believe the general consensus well, the was it was. was. Let's also, if you want to get vulgar about this, but let's, let's, do, let's do because we have to get specific. The report says that they, they urinated on the bed, not yes. on him. Yes, yes. I think that's, and I think that would be important to his that's, followers. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with this germophobia, unless, yeah. of course, it, the claim were then made that he proceeded to lie down on the bed, mm -hmm. which, which, I don't know, maybe he had another bed. Maybe it was a room with two beds. I don't know. You know, here, here's the other thing, and I think this is why people are concerned about this. I mean, there's a report in the Washington Post that uh, Senator McCain, when he heard about this, dispatched his own emissary mm -hmm. to Europe to see if it was true. And the guy came back and said, well, you know, the sources 
they're real sources, and it's plausible that they would have connections in Russia to know whether this really happened. And he, McCain, turned over the dossier to the FBI, which I'm pretty sure had it already, but still. And the reason why this is concerning is that if it is true, if the whole thing is true, the Russians have been kind of tracking Trump and trying to cultivate him, was the word, for the past eight years, that there were continuous contacts uh, between Trump and his people in the campaign and the Russians, this becomes something tantamount to treason, really. I mean, it isn't treason because treason is identified, is defined in the Constitution as embedding with the enemy during times of war, and we are not at war with Russia. But, I mean, it would signify kind of behavior, a pattern of behavior by a president, by someone who really should not be anywhere near uh, the, the seat and the levers of power. Again, I mean, I, we do have to emphasize if this is true. I just want to go over one specific. You said that McCain, I had heard that McCain was the one who handed it over, but his own people investigated it and said that the sources are legitimate sources. Yeah, I mean, right. That's they, what I mean. They knew the actual people. They knew source, the ones who were named as source C that's and source my, D. That's uh, inference. I mean, the, the mm. dossier refers to source A and yep. source B. The report was written by a, an ex-MI6 guy, right. British Intelligence, the, the 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 assumption I have is that McCain or his aides knew who the guy was. Uh, I, I suspect a lot of people know who this guy was. And they went and they asked him, listen, who is Source A, who is Source B? And he told them who they were. And they said, well, that's these are legitimate guys. If there is going to be a, a, a broader investigation into what the intelligence community brought up, then this now has to become a part of it. I want to move to the uh, Senate Foreign Relations confirmation hearings mm-hmm. of Rex Tillerson. Comes in as a real tabula rasa for a guy who was the CEO of, you know, during his time, the number one or two or three biggest company in America. What were your impressions? Well, the hearings are still going on. It's, in fact, as we speak, uh, they are in a lunch break. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to come back this afternoon and even continue into the morning, tomorrow morning, if people want to. Mm-hmm. People have asked him in various ways whether he would recommend sticking with the sanctions against Russia, and he evades those questions about his position on climate change. He's been very evasive. So, so the kinds of questions that people have been troubled with, like whether someone who has worked for his entire adult life for ExxonMobil very actively and very successfully in pursuing the interests of a multinational corporation sometimes against the explicit policies of Washington, D.C., can he just make a switch and and all of a sudden be pursuing the interests of the United States? Does he see a distinction between the two? And on those kinds of questions, he was not very reassuring. Well, I had a little, I'm not even going to say different, but I guess I saw it through uh, different eyes. I interpreted things differently. I think the only thing that would derail his nomination would be if he were to say some things about Russia that don't comport with just reality with Russia not being our ally. And when asked by Ben Cardin early on, does Russia have a right to Crimea? He said, no, that was taking, that was Russia taking 
territory that wasn't theirs. He said they should have been opposed more forcefully. He did, in fact, underline our commitment to NATO, even if the dues and it's not dues, it's a percentage of their military budgets weren't paid, which, by the way, up until Trump mentioned it was not even a part of the discussion of U.S. policy. Basically, I thought that he acted. It it, it very much reminded me of the vice presidential debate where Mike Pence said some very fairly hawkish kind of uh, derogore things that you would expect an American politician, American politician, Republican politician to say about Russia. But then there's the big question mark. Does his boss even agree with him? So that was my takeaway yeah. on how Taylor said no, that. You're right. I mean, at one point, somebody was asked, uh, you know, given that Russia has done this, that and the other thing, uh, yeah. and he said, no, that does not comport uh, with, with our values. And yes, uh, I view Russia as as an adversary with, with which with, with whom we, we can be partners on some issues, but on some things we're always going to disagree. That's right. He said the world, he put the world into adversaries, partners, and allies. And he says, your allies, you want to be your partners. Perhaps sometimes your adversaries can be your partners. I mean, given that he does seem to see the world on that weak, strong binary, that at least showed a little shading of reality to me. No, no. Also, he, he said that he would recommend keeping sanctions in place until... We reevaluate our entire relationship with Russia mm-hmm. and then see where they fit in there. And I think that's a reasonable position. Yeah, I mean, compared with the guy who hired him, yeah, he's reasonable and he doesn't have a, a stereotypical oil executive's view of, of the world. Look, I, I think and have, have always thought that he would probably be confirmed. I think it takes quite a lot of gumption for the this Senate committee and then the Senate to actually reject a candidate for Secretary of State, especially of uh, the majority in the Senate, is of the same party as the president. And, you know, the other thing, and people aren't mentioning this, look at who the runners-up were in that competition. Yeah. You know, you want Giuliani to be Secretary of State? I don't think Trump would ever give it to Romney. I think he was just torturing the guy, taking him out for frog legs dinners at Jean-Georges and stuff like that. Never had any intention. So probably looking at the kind of people that Trump was examining as possible secretaries of state, I think even some of the skeptics will say, well, okay, better than what it could be. He seems to be a grown-up. Yeah, and not not only that, there's so much evidence that he really, Trump, uh, is very affected by his version of charisma and looks. And I thought that no one has ever looked more like a senator who's not a senator than Tillerson. The gray hair, the yeah, drawl, really never breaks into a smile. So senatorial. Yeah, no, well, that, that was the thing of Romney. Romney looks the part, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, why, why not just get Jason Sudeikis to do it then, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Fred Kaplan writes the War Stories column for Slate. Lived in Russia during the uh, early Yeltsin period, where he reported for the Boston Globe. And his new book is Dark Territory, the, the Secret History of Cyber War. Excellent intersectionality, Fred. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. On January 25th in New York City, join Slate for a conversation about how the news media should do its job during the Trump presidency. It's a panel featuring our editor-in-chief, Julia Turner, Chairman of the Slate Group and host of Trumpcast, Jacob Weisberg. Also joining them, David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker, and Lydia Polgreen from The Huffington Post. All participants will be issued a mask, an address, and a secret password. Tickets are on sale now. Visit slate.com slash live.
And now the spiel. The day after Donald Trump's inauguration, there is to be a march on Washington. We hear it's going to be huge. It's going to be a beautiful event. We have great talent, tremendous talent. Okay, that might be the inauguration itself. The March 21st event is called the Women's March on Washington. At first, the name the Million Woman March was considered but rejected because they knew that it was a goal that set the march up to be a failure, even if it were attended by hundreds of thousands. No, that's not why it was rejected. According to Vogue, naming this new event, the Million Women March threatened to overwrite the history of a same-name protest held by thousands of African-American women in Philadelphia in 1997. By the way, that march did not get a million women, it should be noted, but it was attended by a few hundred thousand. It's estimated in previous marches in Washington for reproductive rights in 1989, say, drew half a million, it's estimated. Now, back in 1989, it did seem that there was one group on one side of the issue, George H.W. Bush, Republicans, those who would limit abortion, those who voted for the partial birth abortion ban. And on the other side were protesters, those who attended the march, Women's groups like Emily's List and the National Organization of Women, and they were against the partial birth abortion ban and for reproductive rights. But now there's one side, Trump, and there's another side, women against Trump. But other than opposing Trump, many of the women seem to be opposing each other. The idea for the march built steam on Pantsuit Nation, but a few weeks ago, the creator of Pantsuit Nation announced she had a book deal, and she faced an angry backlash by members who accused her of selling out their ideals. The original organizers of this women's march were criticized for being white. They recognized the validity of this criticism, diversified their leadership group. The march organizers would occasionally feature some activists on their Facebook page. One wrote this, It's a privilege that white supremacy wasn't at the forefront of your reality because you benefit from it. You just don't get to join because now you're scared too. I was born scared. And then there's LaRonda S. Manigold Bryant, professor of Africana Studies at Williams College, who wrote in the New York Times about the sense of betrayal white women have expressed in the post-election season is at best disingenuous. The piece was titled, Don't Look for Me at the Women's March on Washington. The official Twitter feed of the original Million Women's March regularly derides the new Women's March. Recently, Rosa Clemente, the Green Party's 2008 vice presidential candidate, tweeted a picture of Women's March organizers in San Diego with the caption, blindingly white. Now, personally, I'm not one given to protest marchers. I think they're good in blowing off steam. They're also good at giving disparate members of a movement a central gathering place. But I I think they rarely change policy. I think they reflect policy. I think when you hear the chant, this is what democracy looks like, it's not. It looks like a congressional conference room and a deal in a Senate office. And I also do want to acknowledge that if I implied that back in 1989 and at previous marches, there wasn't as much infighting, I could very well be wrong about that. It is true that just back then there weren't as many forms of media, so we wouldn't know if there was infighting. And the forms of social media not only reveal infighting, but of course, exacerbate divisions. So with all these disclosures, I do have one insight, perhaps an insight as to the march, as to the role of activists and activism. And I got this idea from listening to Barack Obama's farewell address. Obama appealed to ideals and he cautioned against fear and he preached the gospel of hope. But over and over again, I noticed Obama referred to something more than ideals or activism or organizing. He spoke 
of work. And it was the neighborhood not far from here where I began working with church groups in the shadows of closed steel mills. I've worked to put the fight against terrorism on a firmer legal footing. That's why we've ended torture, worked to close Gitmo, reformed our laws governing surveillance to protect privacy and civil liberties. And there will be times when the process will disappoint you. But for those of us fortunate enough to have been part of this work and to see it up close, let me tell you, it can energize and inspire. Obama is a thinker and a writer, but he's also a doer. And he defines progress as not convincing a lot of other people that he's right. He counts convincing a lot of other people that he's right or to his way of thinking as an important step in progress. But the progress is towards new laws and new rules. Now, there are professors and thinkers and rhetoricians who define their job as changing attitudes. That's legit. Obama does not. He's a politician. That's a derided term. But to me, it means he knows that change doesn't stop at the size of a rally or movement in the polls. Hell, the guy was defeated on gun control by the pro-gun lobby. Most voters disagree with the pro-gun lobby, but they outwork gun control advocates. The difference between the Occupy movement and the civil rights movement is that the Occupy movement had a complaint. In many ways, it was a legitimate complaint. But the civil rights movement had a goal. And it's not that one is easier or that one just feels good. It's that one, activating people's passions, is a necessary step. The other, the hard work of change, is the end goal. And that's it for today's show. Just producers Chris Berube and Mary Wilson spent the day at a University of Southern California baseball game with Michael Cohen's son. Different Michael Cohen. This one went to the Czech Republic. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, never even met the man he listed as advisor Carter Page. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, would like to introduce his lawyer, Sherry Dillon, and even more impressively, a large pile of binders. The gist, just wondering how to define failing pile of garbage. Wouldn't it be worse to be a successful pile of garbage than you're a big stinky lot of garbage? But if you're an assortment of, say, well-organized fresh produce with no breakage or leakage, wouldn't you technically be failing as a pile of garbage? I just don't want to normalize garbage failure. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Investors like you have a problem. Today, most portfolios only include stocks and bonds. While it's currently performing, it's a strategy that Goldman Sachs predicted in 2023 to underperform for the next decade. Luckily, our sponsor, Masterworks Advisors, focuses on a non-traditional alternative asset, helping over 15,000 investors diversify a portion of their overall portfolios with blue-chip post-war contemporary art. Over 60% of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte have already integrated art into their wealth management offering. And by signing up at masterworks.com slash advisors with code free, you can talk to a registered investment advisor representative who deals exclusively with this alternative asset class. So schedule a free same-day advisory call with Masterworks Advisors. 
just by going to masterworks.com slash advisors and using promo code free. That's masterworks.com slash advisors promo code free. This advertisement relates to the provision of advisory services by Masterworks Advisors LLC and is not intended to offer or solicit investment in any securities and is not investment advice. Masterworks Advisors is affiliated with Masterworks.